Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, John chapter 4. We are turning the page into a new chapter in our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. This is the, if you're keeping track, sermon number 16 through the Gospel of John. And as we turn into chapter 4, there's a new theme that emerges. I've broken this book down into not only sermons, but also themes. And we've seen these themes emerge. And here in chapter 4 and chapter 5, I believe the theme we will see come forward is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is deity. Reason being, Jesus' divine nature is on full display in these chapters. Now, that's not to say that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, we didn't see the deity of Jesus. We didn't see the godhood of Jesus. No, just the opposite. The, the book begins in the, with the prologue, the first 18 verses, where John writes this incredible introduction that does display the deity of Jesus Christ, that shows that he is, in fact, God. God, you move into chapter 2, and the very first miracle recorded in Jesus' ministry is the miracle of turning water into wine, of taking stale water and turning it into the best wine. That is indeed a display of deity. And then as you move into chapter 4, after Jesus' conversation, excuse me, chapter 3, after his conversation with Nicodemus, at the end of that chapter, John writes kind of a concluding paragraph of the, that whole chapter and says that Jesus has been given all things. He's God. He has all judgment. He has all power. He has all rule and all authority. But as we turn the page into chapter 4, we will see that Jesus' deity is on display, not just in what others say about him and not even just in what he does, but in what Jesus himself says. Jesus makes claims, clear and unquestionable claims, that he is God. Now, some skeptics will say, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. And to those skeptics, I would respond, you apparently have never read the four Gospels. Jesus did claim to be God. He did claim deity. In fact, in chapter 5, part of this two-chapter series we're going to look at, at the middle of chapter 5, I want you to notice John's commentary about some of the things Jesus had been publicly saying. In John chapter 5, verse 18 The Bible says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus' friends understood his claims to be God, and Jesus' foes understood his claims to be God. Now, it's because of this claim of Jesus to be God that the great apologist and Christian writer C.S. Lewis presented what's known as the divine trilemma, tri meaning three. And you've probably heard it with those three words. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He made this proposition in his book, Mere Christianity. Notice what Lewis wrote there. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And from the pen of the gospel writer John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we will see this reality emerge in the days to come. Jesus is God. Now, as we come to this fourth chapter, it begins with an encounter that Jesus has with someone that if you've been in church a while or you read the Bible much, you're very familiar with this encounter. It's Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And we're going to break down uh, these, uh, this, these, this encounter really into three sections because the text breaks down into three distinct sections. In fact, we could give them three headings, and they just happen to all begin with the same letter. The first heading I would give in verses 1 through 15 is that of water. The next heading, verses 16 through 26, we could give the heading worship. And the final section of his encounter with the woman at the well, we could give the heading witness. That's verses 27 through 42. Water this week. Next week, worship. Two weeks from now, witness. Now, Lord willing, as we break these down, we'll discover that. And this week, we are in the water section. So the title of my sermon is just that, Living Water. Living Water. Water. Well, let's read our focal text for today. This is the word of God. Receive it as such. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is an absolutely fascinating encounter. And I want you to consider, just for a moment, before we break it down, the stark contrast that the gospel writer John is presenting to us here with the two encounters in chapter 3 with Nicodemus 
and chapter 4, the woman at the well. In fact, this distinct divergence between the two is so spectacular. I want to show you, uh, I couldn't put it any better than the, the theologian James Montgomery Boyce. Here's how he described the contrast between Nicodemus and this woman at the well. He said, it is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status whatever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She was nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She who had not reputation came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. A great contrast. Yet the point of the stories is that both the man and the woman needed the gospel and were welcome to it. If Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above salvation, the woman is an example of the truth that none can sink too low. And John has placed these two figures side by side to show the gospel is indeed for everyone. For everyone, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, and listen, regardless of what you've done. The good news of Jesus, the living water, is for you. But as we consider this passage, I don't want us this morning to think so much about the character and the nature of the woman at the well as much as I want us to think about the character and the nature of the Savior Jesus. Jesus is God. And in this first section, there are three distinct realities that come forth that I want to point out from the text. The first one I want us to consider is this. Number one, the grand purpose of God. The grand overarching purpose of God. Now the text tells us in verses one through three that Jesus was ministering in Judea. That's in the southern part of Palestine. And he was gaining a great following. In fact, his his Ministry was growing so much, it was eclipsing the ministry of John the Baptist. He was discipling more people. He was baptizing more people. Now, we know from the other Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels, that John the Baptist did indeed have a tremendous ministry. All three of them record how crowds and crowds and myriads of people came out to hear John the Baptist preach and to be baptized by him. So this is a great statement to say that now Jesus' ministry and Jesus' following is much greater than John the Baptist. And the text tells us that the Pharisees, the religious muckety-mucks of Judaism, heard that Jesus' ministry was growing more than John the Baptist. And with that knowledge that they knew, Jesus determines to leave the region, to leave Judea, to head from the southernmost part of Palestine to the northernmost part in Galilee. So there's a natural question that arises when we see this action upon the the, the Lord. Why? Why did he leave? Just because they found out that his ministry was getting bigger than John the Baptist, why would that be the impetus, the motivation, to pack up and move north? There's lots of reasons we can maybe think about and consider 
But I can give you for sure one reason why he did not leave Judea and travel north to Galilee because the Pharisees heard about his growing ministry. He did not leave out of fear. Jesus was not afraid. He was not afraid of the Pharisees. He was not afraid of what they could potentially do to him. Uh, Remember, again, the Bible that has these chapter and verse divisions that we enjoy because we can go and find a text immediately, those numbers were not in the original manuscripts. And so the end of chapter 3, that summary paragraph, is preceding here chapter 4. And what do we learn about Jesus in chapter 3? In chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is the one who comes from above. Jesus is the one who has been sent from God. Jesus is the one to whom the Spirit has been given without measure. Jesus is the one to whom all things have been handed into his hands. He knows this about himself. He knows his position. He did not leave Judea because he was afraid of the Pharisees. It was not a motivation of fear. So if he's not afraid, why would he move? If the movement is growing, if it is exploding with people, why leave at the height of his popularity? I would offer a couple of options. Perhaps he knew that in Jerusalem, with his growing ministry and the throngs of people now following him, the messianic fervor would grow to a fevered pitch, and it was not yet on his timetable to encounter those things. So he determined, I'm going to go north to Galilee, and that's where he focused the majority of his ministry. Perhaps he left Judea, because the text says his ministry was growing more than John the Baptist. And it was, it's a very real possibility that these Pharisees, who learned that Jesus' ministry is now bigger and better than John the Baptist, would use that to discredit John the Baptist. Because after all, it was John the Baptist who said to the Pharisees who came out to him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Thoroughly embarrassed by his rebuke, I'm sure they were looking for any way they could to discredit John the Baptist. So maybe Jesus got out of the way so that John the Baptist's reputation would be intact, would not be negatively impacted. But I would suggest another reason why Jesus left Judea at the height of his popularity, at the growing apex of his ministry there. Why did he leave Judea and go north to Galilee? I think it's in the text. Look at verse 4 again. Verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. I want you to circle that word had on your outline. Now, did Jesus have to go through Samaria because of a geographical restriction? No. In fact, most Jewish people would avoid Samaria. If they were traveling from the south to the north or from the north to the south, they would go out of their way to bypass this heathen region known as Samaria. So there's not a a, a geographical restriction here. So why did he have to pass through Samaria? I think it's because of a divine appointment he was going to have with the woman at the well. He left Judea at the height of his popularity with throngs of people following because there was a lost woman in Samaria that needed the living water that only he could provide. This is completely a sovereign movement by the Lord. At the end of the encounter, in fact, as we get in two weeks from now to the witness section of these three sections, as she goes back and witnesses to her town, what does she say about Jesus? 
She said, come and see the man that told me everything I've ever done. Jesus has all knowledge. He knows her intimately. He is omniscient in his knowledge. Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to save this woman. But something I want us to consider about the great purpose of God is this. Look at this next slide. When God determines to do one thing that we can see, he's got a myriad of other things he's accomplishing that we cannot see. Jesus left Judea. He had to go through Samaria because he had to save this woman, but he was also simultaneously staving off the messianic fervor that no doubt would have grown there. He's ending the false accusations towards John the Baptist and saving his reputation, and he's doing a million other things that we can't see. So Christian, let this inform you. If you encounter in your life a painful providence, just know you are only seeing one millionth of what God is doing. A fraction, a billionth of what God is doing Friends, there are no random bumping molecules in the universe of the Creator. Every molecule that bumps together in this universe is bumping together by the sovereign power of God. He is ruling and reigning. You know what word is not in God's vocabulary? Uh oh. That's not in His vocabulary. Nothing takes him by surprise. He's not shocked by anything. There is no random chance. Jesus is always purposeful in all that he does in us, through us, and to us. If you're familiar with the book of Job, you know that Job went through unimaginable loss and pain, difficulty, hardship, And the 42 chapters of Job end with Job coming to an end of himself, confessing to God and repenting to the Lord. And after his repentance, he's restored in relationship, he's restored in blessing. But notice what Job says at the beginning of his confession to God in Job 42, verse verse 2. He says to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We don't use that word thwarted very much. I would say it'd be good to have that in your vocabulary. (laughs) It means to be overthrown. It means to be capsized. It means to be overwhelmed. God will accomplish all his good pleasure. And here's what we need to know. We sang about it just a moment ago. His purposes towards you, Christian, are always for your good and for his glory. They're for your good and for his glory. We're so familiar with Romans 8, 28, but friend, we can't say it enough. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When God does one thing that you can see, as painful as that may be, he's doing a million other things in his sovereign work that you can't see. There's not a choice the Lord makes that he knows there are are ripple effects from that one act that will spread out through eternity. And everyone is purposeful. 
And so Jesus leaves Judea at the height of the growth of his ministry and heads north to Galilee because he had to pass through Samaria. And in that we see the grand purpose of God. But here's the second thing from this passage I want us to see. Number two, the gracious pursuit of God. Number two, the gracious pursuit of God. Now the text tells us in verse six that it was about the sixth hour, and they count their hours from sunup. So let's say sunup is 6 a.m., that would be when? Noon, 12 o'clock. That's the sixth hour. Now for a teenager on the weekend, that's the first hour. But for them, it was the sixth hour, around noon. It's the middle of the day. It's the heat of the day. And I don't want to skip over this glorious reality in verse 6. Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well as we will over the days to come, emphasize the deity of Jesus, that he is God, he also was and is human. He's fully man. And as a man, he got tired. He got worn out. He became hungry. He became thirsty. And he's sitting beside the well. And as he's sitting there at noon, a woman comes to well to draw water. Now, it's unusual for a woman to come alone in the middle of the day to draw water. Usually women would draw water from the well early in the morning when it's cool or in the evening in the cool of the night, but rarely in the middle of the day in the heat of the sun. Further, it was highly unlikely for women to come to the well alone, just like it's highly unlikely for women to go to the bathroom alone. They just something about it. They got to go together, right? For community purposes, for fellowship purposes, for safety precautions in that region. But she comes in the middle of the day by herself, and it tells us something about her. She's an outcast in her town. She's a pariah in her village, and she finds, to her surprise, at the well, there's normally no one else there, a man, not just any man, a Jewish man. Somehow she recognized he was a Jew. How did she know? Was it from the type of clothes he was wearing? Was it from his particular accent when he spoke, perhaps? But she recognized something that signaled to her, uh, you ain't from around here. Notice verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And in that instant, in that moment, Jesus is acting against all the societal norms and protocols of that day. First, he's talking to a woman. And in first century Jewish culture, single men did not talk to single women alone. Further, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. Third, he's at something of a provocative place, at a well. If you know your Jewish history, you know that Jacob found his wife at a well. Isaac found his wife at a well. Moses found his wife at a well. And so there's this sense that be careful talking to women at wells. (laughs) But Jesus isn't bothered by any of that. In fact, what I want you to consider is that this woman at the well, she did not wake up that morning saying, you know, I'd love to meet the Messiah today. But Jesus woke up that morning saying, I will graciously pursue her today. And he relentlessly pursues her. Now in the text we'll consider next week, we'll see that 
that Jesus does, in fact, have divine omniscience. He knows her story. He's read her mail. He knows that she's been married five times, and he knows that the man she's living with now, he's not her husband. He knows this woman very, very well. And in spite of that, he graciously pursues her. But not only does Jesus know her history, not only does Jesus know her lifestyle, her background, Jesus knows her ethnicity. And in the first century, well, John even has that little parenthetical statement in verse 9. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In fact, it's been suggested that that verse could be translated, Jews do not use utensils with Samaritans because that's the literal idea behind the word. They don't use the same eating utensils. They don't use the same drinking utensils. The Jews of that day thought Samaritans were not only less than Jews, they thought they were less than human. There's a statement in what's known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a collection of rabbinical writings from the first and second century Judaism, and these writings were put together about a century after the time of Christ. And really, this Mishnah reflects much of the belief and practices of Judaism during Jesus' day. There's a line from the Mishnah in the book of Nidah, chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. Samaritan girls are considered menstruating women from the time they lie in their cradle. And the Samaritan men impart ritual impurity to the lower bedding like the upper bedding all layers of bedding beneath them are impure, and their status is like the bedding above a man who experiences a gonorrhea-like discharge. Welcome, Samaritans. You see, in the Mosaic Law, a menstruating woman was considered unclean during that time in her cycle. And the Jews of Jesus' day considered little baby girls unclean from birth. Whatever they touch is like a gonorrhea-like status. And so were the men. That's why the mindset is, Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. And the woman knew that. And Jesus comes to her and says, give me a drink out of your water bottle. It's hard to come up with a modern equivalent, particularly in our society as to just how far of a cultural barrier and what kind of a social faux pas Jesus is doing here, asking this woman for a drink from her cup. The most relevant example I could think of was how down here in the South, during the Jim Crow era, there were separate water fountains and separate bathrooms for separate ethnicities. You had whites only and colored drinking fountains, restrooms. I I thought about that this week. I thought about the fact that in our church, connected to our church, we've got about a half dozen general contractors in our church. So if we're ready to build something, we're we're set, right? We've got a lot of builders in our church. Could you imagine during the Jim Crow era, if you were contracted to build a grocery store, a department store, a Dollar General, and you get the blueprints, which have been stamped by the building inspector downtown, and you see in the plumbing plans, white supremacy. 
there in blue and white. Whites are better than colored. We don't associate with them. We won't use the same bathrooms as them. We won't drink from the same water fountains as them. You feel that? This is what's happening here. And Jesus comes into that says, can I drink from your water bottle? Give me a drink from your utensil. There is an ethnic barrier. There's a culture barrier. There's a religious barrier. There's a gender barrier. There's a moral barrier. And Jesus kicks down all those barriers and says, not today, not here. She was not looking for him, but he was graciously pursuing. She doesn't know the kind of Messiah she's talking to. You see, look at this next slide. Jesus is not defiled by what he touches. He makes defiled people clean. He's not defiled by what he touches. He makes defiled people clean. In Matthew chapter 8 and in Luke chapter 5, there is the record of a man who was quote, full of leprosy. From head to toe, he has the bleeding scabs and the oozing ulcers. And he falls down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus, seeing the man with faith, reaches out to touch him. And I can just imagine how everyone around Jesus is thinking, no, 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 Jesus, don't touch him. You touch him, you're going to be ceremonially unclean. Or even worse, you'll catch and contract the contagion that he has. Jesus doesn't even stop. He touches him. And what happens? He's immediately healed. Why? Because Jesus is not defiled by what he touches. He makes defiled people clean. And if you came into this room this morning and you would honestly say of yourself, I'm defiled, just let Jesus touch you. He's not defiled by you, but he makes defiled people clean. You know, this passage is often used. I discovered as I listened to about seven sermons on this passage and read several commentaries, this passage is often used as kind of a launch pad for evangelism to kind of motivate people to witness. Why don't you be like Jesus and cross cultural barriers to share him with other peoples? And and I can certainly see that. But here's the thing I want us to recognize this morning. We're not Jesus in the passage. We're the woman. We're defiled We're the outcast, and Christ purposefully, graciously pursues you. In the introduction of this gospel, John laid the foundation for this pursuit that Jesus has for sinners like you and like me and like this shady lady of Sychar. John 1.16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon us. Would you give me a drink from your cup? I'm thirsty. So we see the grand purpose of God in Christ. He must needs go through Samaria, says the King James Version. We see the gracious pursuit of God in Christ. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. But thirdly notice, the generous provision of God. The generous 
provision of God. Did you notice here at the beginning, Jesus doesn't specifically address her question about the ethnic and uh, the social barriers that exist between the two. We have nothing to do with each other, Jews and Samaritans. He doesn't even answer her question. Who are you, a Jew, asking me for something to drink? Instead, he answers her question by making a pronouncement about who is standing in front of her and the opportunity that is available to her. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She does not see or have understanding of what Jesus is saying. She's thinking physically. He's speaking spiritually. It's just like Nicodemus in the previous chapter. Remember that? Jesus said, you must be born again, Nicodemus. What did Nicodemus say? Where can I find a womb big enough for me to crawl back into and be born? (laughs) He's thinking physically. Jesus is speaking spiritually. She's thinking physically. He's speaking spiritually. I have living water to give you, but you don't have a bucket. Now, in her response, she does sense that Jesus is making some type of claim of authority, even superiority over Jacob. Look at verse 12 again. She says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. That's the question for you this morning. Is Jesus greater than your Jacob? Is he greater than your ancestry? Is he greater than your background? Is he greater than your history? Is he greater than your past? Is Jesus greater than your heritage? Is Jesus greater than your accomplishments? Is Jesus greater than your success? Whatever it is, these twigs that you are building your life on that you think will somehow support this safe, prosperous, American lifestyle, is Jesus greater than that? He is. Yes, Jesus is greater. Notice how he responds in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, yeah, I'm greater. Yes, I am greater. My gift is superior. My water is superior. My well is superior. And my sons and daughters are superior. They never die. They never thirst. They have eternal life. Why? Living water. You know, thirst is such a familiar human desire. This morning before small group, I saw Katie running back to her car. What are you doing? I gotta get my water bottle. I'm thirsty. We're familiar with this need of liquid. You can go a long time without food. You can't go very long without drink. And God often uses this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe what he provides for us. In fact, in the Old Testament book from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah records the words of the Lord to his people. And God identifies two problems with his people. What does he say? Jeremiah 2.13. For my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, Number two, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no 
water, such a graphic picture, someone coming to a refreshing spring to take water back to quench their thirst, but they've got a broken bucket. It's cracked. It's got holes in it. It's a cistern that can hold no water. And the Lord is saying, my people, they're filling up these cisterns thinking they're going to be satisfied, but these cisterns are broken. They're cracked. They're busted. They can't satisfy. And they're surprised. Why am I always thirsty? Because you keep looking to broken cisterns. The broken cistern of that job. That promotion, that position, the broken cistern of a relationship, the broken cistern of retirement, the broken cistern of if I just had another child, the broken cistern of if I could just get rid of one of my children, the broken cistern of respect in the community, the broken cistern of a stable government. We run to these things. We think they will satisfy. And the Lord says, you've hewn out for yourselves these buckets. They can't hold water. You're always thirsty. You're never satisfied. We'll get to the woman's story next week and the week after, Lord willing. But what we'll discover is that this woman went back again and again and again to the same broken cistern. She had five husbands before, and now the one in her home, she's just living with them. They're not married. We don't know why. Maybe she was pursuing sex. Maybe she was looking for the broken cistern of the security she thought she could have from a man, the validation she thought she would get from a man, and she would give them whatever they wanted so she could get that validation, that relationship. Whatever internal longing she had, she thought a man could fulfill it. Ladies, he can't. Men, she can't. She's now on guide number six, and Jesus is saying to her, though she doesn't yet understand, how's that cistern working for you? How's that broken bucket going? How's your thirst-quenching quest concluding. Now, in this dialogue, Jesus identifies several qualities about the water that only he can provide. First of all, he says it's the gift of God. It is the gift of God. This is living water. It's a gracious gift. Secondly, he says, once you drink it, you're never thirsty again. Now, what does that mean, that once you drink it, you're never thirsty again? Does it mean I'll never have times of spiritual dehydration? Does it mean I'll never have times of that inner aching or that longing in my soul? No, that's not how this thirst-satisfying well works. It's not that you take one drink of Jesus and, boop, forever and ever, you're satisfied. Notice how Jesus described it in the next phrase. He said, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, this water, when you take a drink, not only does it satisfy that momentary thirst, but Jesus says that one drink then transmutes and transforms miraculously to an internal well inside you that has eternal life, that springs forth, that is welling up. Like, look at that word welling up there. This 
word underneath there is only used here and two other places in the Bible, welling up. Well, what is it? Now, the two places it's used are both in the book of Acts, one with Peter and the other with Paul. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are heading into the temple, and Peter's eyes meet with a lame beggar there at the temple gates who's been lame from birth. He's never been able to walk. And notice this exchange in Acts 3, verses 6 through 8. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter says, rise up and walk. And he, the lame man, he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Here's the word. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Similar situation in Acts chapter 14, again this time with the Apostle Paul. Look at Acts 14, 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up right on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. The same word Jesus uses here about the well of water, the spring of water. When you take a drink of Jesus to have your thirst satisfied, it transforms into an internal spring of truth that leaps and springs up and gushes over. As I thought about it this week, I thought about, you've probably been to like amusement parks or maybe town squares where they've got these water fountains that are synchronized to music. Anybody ever seen those things before? They're fascinating. I just sit there for hours and watch them. And Jesus says, this fountain, boom, it's springing up inside you, leaping, welling up. That's why the person who drinks deeply is never thirsty again. There's a continual flow of water, a continuous hydration station. That means Christian. Christian, listen, you don't have to go anywhere else looking for your thirst to be quenched. You don't have to hew out for yourselves these cisterns. The world says, oh, this is going to give you satisfaction. This is going to give you meaning. This is going to give you purpose. You don't have to look anywhere else to quench the deep longings of your soul. And this is the kind of water that when you reach out and you embrace Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your treasure, as your life, as your all, that first drink produces within you a spring that leaps forth with life. Now, when we get to chapter 7, in the middle of October, <laughs> we're going to see that this spring of living water inside everyone who has faith in Jesus is a person, and he has a name. Who is it? Well, let's see. It's a little preview of October. John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not been glorified. Christian, when you drink deeply of Jesus that first time, there's not a subsequent second blessing. At that moment, you receive the Holy Spirit who is the fountain of living water who will spring up within you living water and your thirst will be quenched. Did Jesus understand what, or excuse me, did the woman 
understand what Jesus was saying here, all that he was intending? No. She didn't. (laughs) Not yet. Yet, I say, come back next week. I know she didn't because of the last verse of this section, verse 15. After Jesus says all this about the supernatural spring of water, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. (laughs) She's still thinking physically. She's still thinking on an earthly plane. And what is she saying? I don't like coming out here in the heat of the day. Social pariah that I am. Outcast from my village that I am. Lugging skins of water back home to my house, to my old man who's probably still asleep in bed. Sir, would you give me this water so I don't have to keep coming out here? An embarrassment and shame? What's interesting is there are many who give some form of profession of Jesus because of what they think or what they've been falsely told Jesus will do for them physically. It's the doctrine of demons known as the prosperity gospel. You take a drink of Jesus, you'll be healthy, your sickness will be gone, you have money in the bank, rings on your finger, you'll be prosperous, you'll be liked, you'll become more attractive magically. I don't know what they promise, but it's a bait and switch. You just take a drink and all your dreams will come true. This woman didn't yet believe, but the offer that Jesus gives to her and the offer that Jesus gives to you and I to drink deeply, it's not a prosperity offer. No, just the opposite. Whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Take up your instrument of execution and follow me. But when you come to Jesus like that, springs of living water, As we've seen, Jesus is very purposeful in his pursuit of this woman. He engaged her in conversation. He asked her for a drink from her cup. Jesus intentionally, very purposefully, had to go through Samaria. In fact, look again at verse 4 where we started this message. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Interesting little word there, had. John, the gospel writer, has already used the Greek word that's under this English word had several times. Perhaps you'll remember some of these occasions. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Same word. The Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross. John the Baptist, he must increase. I must Decrease. Same word. Jesus must pass through Samaria. This word is also used the first time it's used, in fact, in the New Testament. Matthew uses it in chapter 16. Notice how he uses the word in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he must be killed. And he must 
on the third day be raised. Why did Jesus have to go to Jerusalem? Because he had to save the woman at the well. Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? Because he had to pay the penalty for her life of decadence and depravity. Why did Jesus have to be resurrected from the dead? Because he already made a promise. Living water. Eternal life. And friend, he had to go there to Jerusalem for you. To give you new life. To give you this living water. To give you eternal life. And what's the condition? Verse 14, John 4, 14. Whoever drinks. That's a metaphor from John 3, 16. Whoever, what? Believes. That's what drinking is. It's believing in who Jesus is and what he has done. This woman didn't know a lot of things. She misunderstood much of what Jesus was talking about, but we'll see in, in the weeks to come. He made things very clear. But she didn't know a lot. She did know one thing. I'm thirsty. And I would ask you, do you know that? Are you thirsty? Think about it. Are you thirsty? Jesus says, take a drink. That leads to my last thought. Jesus offers complete satisfaction for every thirst of your soul. Let's go to him in prayer.